It's my privilege to call your attention this morning to the most profound statement of the resurrection found anywhere in the Bible, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, chapter number 15 uh, this morning for a few minutes, page 904 in your church Bibles, if you need one today, 1 Corinthians, chapter number 15. At Hillcrest, uh, we've been in a series of teachings dealing <clears throat> with the subject of victory, the victorious disciple. Uh, what is victory? How do we find it? How do we live in it? I think it's a subject that's especially appropriate, timely, relevant, uh, especially in these past couple of years, where it seems like we've been challenged with one bitter blow after another. Things like a worldwide pandemic. Whoever would have imagined that that would have been a thing. That, that's the subject of Hollywood movies. That doesn't really happen in life, only it kind of does. Then we followed that, of course, with a hurricane that was an unwelcomed intruder in our backyard. We watch the news and we see stories of wildfires burning out of control like never before. We have experienced nasty political campaigns. I mean, political campaigns in the United States have been nasty since like 1776, amen? But, you know, with the onset of 24-hour cable news and social media and the like, uh, the politics, the political nastiness just in our face all the time, social upheaval, sexual redefinition uh, that's being literally force-fed down our throats. We're living in times of conflict where there are wars and rumors of wars, things that are very concerning to us personally, to our children, to our grandchildren, and you know, in a world like that, I'm convinced that what people need more than anything else is hope. Part of the reason we've sung about it this morning, because we can have hope, but you won't find it in a political remedy, and you won't find it in a vaccine, and you won't find it in a 401k. The only place you can find hope, the kind of hope that you need, is what the Bible calls a living hope, and the only place that that's present is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what makes Easter and the resurrection of Christ so important. I'm just here to announce this morning, very simply, that you can have hope in a crazy, mixed up, upside down world. I'm here to announce this morning that you can live with victory. You can live a triumphant kind of life, even in the face of uncertain, confusing, even threatening times and the place where you find that kind of hope and the place where you find that kind of victory is through a personal experience at the empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that's so important is because the principal announcement of the empty tomb is that a better day is coming. I believe that. This world that we live in is a great world. We live in a great country, but this ain't heaven, brothers and sisters. And we make a mistake when we try to turn this present world, which is in fact darkness, into a place of eternal light and eternal life. That day is coming, and that day is awaiting. We can have it as a sure reality today. But you gotta go to the empty tomb first in order to get there. That's something Jesus made clear to his own disciples even the night before he died. There in the upper room where 24 hours later Jesus would find the crucifixion, he shared his last supper with his closest intimates. And he tells them there 
to let not their hearts be troubled. And one of the things that he reminds them is that I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Now that statement by itself implies that we ain't there yet. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And then he gives them a promise. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now with that in mind, the apostle Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15 which is one of the most encouraging passages that you find anywhere in the Bible. 1 Corinthians is a, 15 is a long passage and we don't have time to read the whole thing, but it deals with one subject exclusively and that is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and not only the resurrection of Jesus, but what the resurrection means for those who follow Jesus by faith. Let's take a look this morning at the very last paragraph of this very lengthy chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll begin reading in verse number 20. Here at Hillcrest, we believe that the Bible is the holy, inerrant, infallible word of the living God, and we honor it by standing in its presence as we read it together. Verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, <clears throat> in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, what a great and inspiring passage that we have before us this morning. And I pray that your Holy Spirit does the work as his, uh, the master teacher that he is today. Get the preacher out of the way. Speak spiritual words of life by means of the Holy Spirit to spiritual beings who are gathered together watching online today that the word of God may be like a seed planted deep in rich fertile soil that it might sprout and flower and produce fruit that brings honor and glory to Christ. May someone even find Christ today for the first time. And through it all, Father, we pray that your majestic name would be glorified. Through Christ our risen Savior, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Hillcrest. You can be seated. <clears throat> first Corinthians was a, a letter that was written to pretty much a mixed up church. 
These people were messed up. And Paul knew they were messed up. They had unusual practices that were of the flesh and did not bring honor and glory to God. They were confused about many things in terms of the teaching of the gospel. So Paul writes them this letter to kind of correct the bad behavior and to instruct in right believing. And a part of what he writes here concerns the resurrection. Paul has received word from the church at Corinth that there's some misunderstanding about the doctrine of the resurrection. There's misunderstanding about the resurrection of Jesus and there's misunderstanding about the doctrine of the resurrection as it pertains to you and me and all other believers. And Paul wants to get this corrected because he knows, as he's described early in the chapter, that the resurrection of Jesus, to use his language, is a matter of first importance. He lays out the gospel at the very beginning. For I present to you that which is of first importance, that Christ Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. This, according to Paul, is a matter of principal importance, first importance, because it's the essence of what we call the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with the resurrection of Jesus in mind, Paul goes on to say that if Christ is not raised from the dead, everything about the Christian faith is turned on its head. If Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is futile, it's pointless. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then the gospel message is nothing but a joke. If Christ is not raised from the dead, human beings like you and me have no hope to find victory over sin, no hope over the grave that is to come. We're totally left stuck in bondage. We're continually separated from God without hope in this world, especially when it comes time to die. But then Paul does something that's critically important. He connects the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a coming resurrection in the future for everyone who by faith follows Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, not only was Christ bodily raised from the dead, but you will be too one day. We tend to spiritualize the doctrine of the resurrection more than the Bible intends for us to. And there is a real spiritual sense in which the moment that we're saved, we are raised from spiritual death to everlasting life. But that inner spiritual resurrection points forward to the future of what's going to happen with your body. That's why what you do with your body matters today because your body's going to live for eternity. Not just your spirit, not just your soul, but you're going to be just like Christ and have a body that one day comes out of the grave. Paul makes that clear emphatically, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But in fact, say that together with me, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then what's the next two words out of his mouth? The what? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, for those who have died in faith, for those whose bodies have ceased to be, but who believed in the Lord at the time of their bodily death. Christ has been raised from the dead and his resurrection is the first fruits, the prototype, the model 
of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 22, for as in Adam all what? Die, so in Christ shall all what? Be made alive through the resurrection of your body from the dead. So Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of what's gonna happen to you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Christ's resurrection is the model of what's going to happen to you one day if you know Christ as Savior and Lord. And that's what Paul's reflecting on in the passage that we read just a moment ago. It's why Easter is such a great celebration. Yes, we gather together to celebrate because Christ has been raised from the dead, but we gather together to celebrate what that resurrection from the dead means for us individually, namely that we too have the promise that what happened to him will one day happen to us. And that's why you don't have to be afraid to die. Amen. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. A day is going to come when those of us who know Jesus Christ by faith We'll come out of the grave and we'll be raised in just the same way he was. Look again with me at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be what? Raised, how? Imperishable and we shall be changed. Now that's a reference of what's gonna to happen to believers at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus is coming again, how about you? God is not finished with the work of Christ. He's ascended, taken his place on a throne, seated at the right hand of God, but make no mistake, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is coming again. And the Bible says when he comes, it'll be with sight and sound. There'll be a great trumpet blast and the Bible says at that moment, in a flash, Jesus is going to split the eastern sky and in a twinkling of an eye, in other words, in no more time than it takes for a camera flash to bounce off the surface of your eyeball, which is like a nanosecond in time, right? In the twinkling of an eye, just that fast, two things are going to happen. The Bible teaches that those who know Christ by faith and are still alive at the coming of Christ, and by the way, let me just say, I think the coolest thing in the world would be to be alive when Jesus comes again, because your body will never die if that happens, right? So the first thing that happens when Christ comes again is something will happen to those who are alive but who know Christ by faith. And the Bible says we, those who are alive, will be what? Changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. We'll be transformed. We'll be outfitted instantaneously for a life eternal in the heavens. We call that the rapture of the church. That's the first thing that's going to happen. Those who know Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, will instantly be changed in bodily form. But then there's a second thing that happens when Christ comes again, and that is the Christian dead those who have died in faith. Anybody here this morning have loved ones who have died trusting Jesus as Savior and Lord and you've had to attend their funeral services? This morning, I wrote two letters of uh, condolence to two of our church members, one who had a father who passed away this past week, one who had a mother <clears throat> who passed away this past week. I just wrote them about an hour and a half ago to tell them that they could have hope 
because one of these days Christ is going to come again, and when he comes again, what Paul teaches here is going to prove that death cannot hold them any more than death could hold him. If we've been saved by faith at the coming of Jesus Christ, those who have died in the Lord will be gloriously and miraculously raised from the dead. And it does not matter, let me just say it because I know I'm going to get an email if I don't. It does not matter if you've been all dressed up and put in a casket and buried traditionally or if something has happened to your body to immaterialize it before Christ comes again. I don't have time to get into all that this morning. That's another sermon for another day. What I am saying this morning is that no matter how your final remains go back to dust, they still go back to dust. And it is not a problem for the Lord Jesus Christ to recompose those who know him by faith and to give them a body that's outfitted for heaven. If we've been saved by faith, whether we're alive or dead, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, thank God, we shall all be changed. Again, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Jesus Christ shall all be what? Made alive. Now that's a really big deal for you and me. And let me give you three reasons why this morning. First of all, I want you to notice that the resurrection is necessary for the life to come. If you're gonna populate heaven as a child of God, you have to be bodily raised from the dead. Listen, in the future kingdom, you're not gonna be Casper the friendly ghost just floating around in midair. You're gonna be walking a recreated planet Earth with a very real body. Now here's the bone honest truth. I wanna make it very clear. Your best efforts, your best intentions are not good enough to save you and to give you a home in heaven. Doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how honest you are, your best efforts are not good enough for you to be saved supernaturally and spiritually. And your present body, the one that you're sitting in now, and I'm telling you, you'll never look better probably than you look right now. It's Easter Sunday for crying out loud. You ain't looking any better. Maybe when you go to the prom, but that's old news for most everybody in the room today. That ain't happening anymore. But you probably never look better than you look right now, right? It's not good enough for the kingdom of heaven. And you need to know it. You need a complete change. You need a total overhaul. And you need an overhaul inside and outside. Look again at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, watch it. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Did y'all see that? Say amen. Flesh and blood, that means you're, the body that you're living in right now won't work in heaven. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse 53, for this perishable body, perishable body, what's the next word? Must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Circle those key words, cannot and must. The physical cannot inherit the eternal. The perishable must put on something imperishable. What that means is you need a change of clothes, spiritual clothes, so to speak, 
for life in the eternal kingdom. Listen, if you're invited to dinner at the White House, and I've often told my church, if I'm ever invited for dinner in the White House, I don't care who the president is, I am going. And if you're invited to dinner at the White House, you're not gonna work out in the yard all day and then punt the shower and then go straightway to the state dinner in the clothes that you've had on all day that are now soiled because you've been working in the yard. No, you're gonna go in and you're gonna get cleaned up. You're gonna strip off one set of garments and you're going to, using Paul's language, put on something suitable. You're going to put on something more appropriate because if you don't do that, you're gonna get stopped at the door by the big guy wearing the dark suit and the Ray-Ban glasses and you're not getting in the big house. I'm just telling you that this morning. Now, if the good folks at the White House were nice people, because you an American citizen, they just say, you know what, you, you look terrible. But just go over here to this room because we've got a new set of clothes for you and we're gonna let you get cleaned up and then you can go into the dinner. If they were nice people, that's what they would do. But they're just not that nice at the White House. They're just gonna turn you away because you're showing up inappropriately. But here's what I love about the Lord. God's not like that. God is not like that. See, all of us in one sense show up before God inappropriately dressed. But God loves us so much that he's not gonna turn us away if we're willing to come and accept his invitation. And he's gonna give us the proper attire that's necessary as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, God's gonna provide the proper outfit. And the proper outfit for life in the kingdom of heaven is a brand new body. Something that we call the resurrection body. See, that's a body that's designed never to wear out. I don't know about you, my body's wearing out, man. I'm getting old. It's just the gospel truth. Every joint in my body has got something wrong with it from playing baseball for all those years or physical injury. You know, I had a couple of car accidents along the way and I'm just telling you, it hurts to get up in the morning sometimes. This body is not gonna work for an eternity. It's wearing out day by day. And the Bible says that. For we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal <clears throat> in the heaven. That's your resurrection body. And listen, it's another message. What's that body gonna look like? I don't have time to go into that today, nor do I really know all that much about it. All I know is it'll be kind of like the one Jesus had when he came out of the grave. That body was still Jesus, wasn't it? They, I mean, they didn't quite recognize it at first, but then when they got up close and they looked at it a little bit more uh, <clears throat> closely, they, they thought, oh, it's Jesus. And they did recognize, so it was still Jesus. Only different. And your body, the one that you'll have one day when Christ comes again and raises you from the dead, that will still be you. You'll still be you in heaven. You're not gonna be Casper the ghost in heaven. You're gonna be you in heaven, only without the flaw. Somebody say amen this morning. And that's why we look forward to it. No flaws. This is why you have to be raised from the dead. This is why your earthly body will not work. It's just full of flaws. It's messed up. It's been corrupted by sin. You gotta be 
physically raised so that you can be physically transformed by God. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. Who's the man of dust? Adam. Just as we've borne the image of Adam, frail, weak, lowly, given to sin, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. And see, that future resurrection, our bodily resurrection of the dead is the way you change your clothes. It's the way you put on eternal clothes. No resurrection from the dead, no resurrection body. No resurrection body, no participation in the final kingdom to come in the new heaven and the new earth. Paul is very clear, this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the resurrection of the body from the dead is exactly the way it happens. Everybody tracking with me so far, would you say amen? The resurrection is necessary for life in the eternal kingdom. But then secondly, notice that Paul makes clear that the resurrection is what ensures our victory over death. It ensures victory over death, victory over evil, victory over everything that is wrong that's consummated with what we call death. Now, how ironic that today is Easter Sunday and tomorrow's tax day. I mean, I couldn't have designed it like that if I'd have wanted to. I think it was the great Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography who said, in this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. Amen. Now, not to be a downer, but here's the thing. You better pay your taxes. Call me, I'll visit you in prison if you don't, but you gotta pay, you gotta pay your taxes. And short of the coming of Christ, your body will die. But you know that already. You just don't wanna have to face it. Nobody likes to talk about it. But short of the coming of Christ, unless we're alive at the coming of the Lord, newsflash, spoiler alert, there's a 100% probability that your body is going to die. And it would seem to me that death wins. If when you die, all that happens is that your body, the very body that's created in the image of God, the Bible says, just simply goes back to the dust. I mean, if that's all that happens, if that's all that we have to look forward to, there's no way to argue around the reality that death is the victor in life, that death gets the final say, that the grim reaper is the most powerful presence in this life. And see, it's that prospect that makes death the most fearful thing that you and I ever face, even more frightening than having to pay your taxes. It's a frightening thing to most people. I've said many times, America, we're afraid of a lot of things. I was walking through an airport not long ago and a teenager, a young adult came walking down, big strapping male guy, had a shirt on and you know what it said? Not scared, S-K-E-E-R-E-D, not scared. And you know what I thought? That guy's the most fearful guy in the whole airport. I mean, he's trying to convince himself that he's not afraid. And the thing that most people are most afraid of is death. They just don't admit it. You look at any poll in which Americans are asked, asked, what are you most fearful of? 
And all the common stuff ends up on it, right? Uh, fear of heights and the fear of closed-in spaces, claustrophobia, all of this stuff, spiders, snakes, needles. Most people say they're more afraid of public speaking than anything else. Public speaking is the number one fear in America today. But you look at these popular lists, what's not on the list? Death. I mean, it's just an irony to be. Because you know it, I know it, everybody knows it. We're more afraid of dying than we are of anything else. We just are so afraid of it, we don't want to even bring it up when somebody asks us, what are you afraid of? But the question on the table today, that even though death is the great enemy, the inevitable enemy, is their hope. We die because of sin, the Bible teaches. Paul says here in verse 56, the sting of death is what? Sin, sin's the culprit. He'll say in Romans chapter six, the wages of sin is what? Death, that's right. So death comes because of sin. There was no death before Adam and Eve sinned. They would have lived forever in that pristine place called the garden had they not sinned, but they did. And death, the Bible says, came to all men because now all men sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So sin is the culprit when it comes to death. Paul calls it the stinger. I remember the first time my daughter got stung by a honeybee. She's walking around the backyard. We lived in Missouri at the time. She's walking about around the backyard, had a lot of clover in the yard and a bee was feeding on that clover and apparently Whitney just stepped right on the bee and, and got stung. And I'm telling you, you, you'd have thought she got shot. She, she was running around the yard screaming and hollering. Then she fell straight to the ground and I, did, I thought, what in the world is going on with this crazy girl? And she was pointing down to her foot and I remember picking her up and carrying her over to the patio and I set her up on the patio table and I said, well, let me look at it. And plain as day right there in the, in the sole of her foot was, was the stinger, still stuck in there, things swelling up. And I pulled, I said, hang on a minute, quit moving around. And I reached in there and I pulled that stinger out from the bottom of her foot. And then I showed it to her and I said, here, see, that's what was causing it. And now I've taken it out, it's not there anymore. And I mean, just crying stop, just that quick. No more tears. Once she saw that the stinger had been removed. And you know, that's what Paul says that God did by raising Christ from the dead. When Christ was raised from the dead, the stinger got pulled. The sting of death is sin. And what Christ defeated by coming back to life again was the awful effects of sin over humanity. The sting of death is sin, but the empty tomb is how the stinger got pulled. Does that make sense? Amen. And that knowledge causes Paul to just break into shouting, man. Paul starts praising the Lord right here in verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, you know what that's called right there. That's called a taunt. Now, taunting is a penalty in college football, amen. You can't do that and get away with it. We've all seen it done. You know, the defensive back knocks the wide receiver on his backside and the ball comes flying out and the guy just stands over, starts trash talking right on top of him. 
You're in my house now. That's not the way we do business here, right? Well, that's what Paul's doing right here. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Where is it? Come on, is this the best you can do? He taunts. It's kind of like Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston when he knocked him out, you know? In that famous photo, he's just standing right on top of him with his arm curled right over the, I started to say the lifeless body. He's lucky he didn't die. The listless body of Sonny Liston. But Paul's not bragging in himself. Paul's not bragging about anything he did. Paul's bragging about what Jesus did. Isn't that right? Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want you to notice is that the victory that we have now is total victory, complete victory, uncontested victory. Verse 54, death is what? Say it out loud, please. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, that's an image we can all relate to because we all love National Geographic programming and we like to watch the Discovery Channel and we'd like to watch the planet Earth on public broadcasting. You know, whenever you and I eat, we tend to do it one bite at a time, right? With a couple of exceptions at Hillcrest. But most of us just eat one bite at a time, right? But then you watch these programs and sometimes you'll see creatures like a, a South American python or a boa constrictor and they get a hold of their meal and they just unhinge their jaw and swallow that whole thing. And I mean, when they do, there's not a hair, there's not a hoof left behind. The whole thing is swallowed up entirely. And here's what Paul is saying. That's what God did with sin and death when Christ came out of the grave. Yeah, we still face death this side of heaven. We still face death until the second coming, make no mistake. But the empty tomb has swallowed death whole as a promise from the moment of the resurrection of Jesus. But as a reality, when Jesus comes again, and takes each of us, even when we die, and he lifts us up and reconstitutes our body, giving us everlasting victory over the grave. And so here's the message of Easter because of that. The thing that you and I tend to fear the most is the very thing that we don't have to fear at all. That's the message of the resurrection. Death might look frightening, but it's a mirage. Death might give a roar that sounds threatening, but it's a toothless roar. The resurrection ensures that we will live even though we die. And then there's a final thing that I'd highlight about the resurrection, and that is not only does it provide hope for the future, but the resurrection inspires a life of confidence and a life of purpose for today. Knowing what's going to happen to us by faith in Christ in the future changes the way that you look at life, <clears throat> see life, experience life, 
as you live today. Paul concludes this lengthy teaching on the resurrection with verse 58. And he uses an important first word. And what is it? Say it out loud. Therefore, based on everything that he just said, based on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, what that means for us, the certainty of the coming again of Christ and what Christ is going to do to believers, whether they be alive or whether they have already died in the Lord, the reality of what the death of Christ means to our greatest enemy, death, that it's been swallowed up in victory. Therefore, my beloved brothers, so he's writing to Christian people, here's this, what this means to you if you know the Lord by faith, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The thing about the resurrection is that it's important not only for what it actually means to our future, but for what it means to our present, for what it means to us today. Because the resurrection is supposed to change the way you live today. It's supposed to change your worldview, how you see life, how you see people, how you see your family, how you experience your work, how you approach things like death and disease and disruptions in society. The resurrection is supposed to change all of that. It should change your attitude, should change your heart, and it should change how you actually live because the resurrection is what gives us hope. It's what gives us conviction. It's what gives us purpose in life. I'm just saying, man, <clears throat> what's the purpose? If all you have to look forward to is death in the dust, what's the whole point of life? What's the whole point of living? What's the whole point of ethics? What's the point of morality? What's the point of anything but a selfish, self-centered existence? If the only thing you have to look forward to is death. But see, the resurrection is what gives us a reason to live. The resurrection is what gives us a mission to pursue a mission and a life that's far more purposeful than stuffing a 401k or climbing a corporate ladder or driving a nicer car or living in a bigger house. Because I'm telling you, if you know Jesus, your best life is not now. Your best life is the life that is to come. What we're living today is just supposed to be the warm-up act for the better life that Christ has designed for you. And we're supposed to live as if we actually know that. This isn't what life really is all about. There's a better day to come. And so the resurrection calls us to live on purpose as the winners that we already are. Let me just tell you, man, if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, you're by definition a winner. God has classified you as a winner. We don't have to live fearfully. We don't have to live fretfully. Why not? Because we're winners. We don't have to cower in fear. We can live with confidence and courage and boldness. Why? Because we're winners. Some people don't like to do it, but I like to watch reruns of my favorite college football games because I don't have any stress. I don't have any tension. I'm watching these things live, man. I can't sit still. I'm walking around the room. I can't eat anything. 
I'm too afraid to go to the bathroom, afraid of what I'm gonna miss. But I'm telling you, there's just something about how your demeanor and disposition changes when you know and you're certain of what the outcome's gonna be. I cock back in that lazy boy and I can watch it. I can tell my son, watch this coming up right here. Boom! It just changes everything when you know what the outcome is going to be. And that's what the resurrection does for us today. We already know the outcome because the stinger has been removed. A death has been <clears throat> swallowed up. Therefore, what that means for us today is clear. You need to trust Jesus to save you if you haven't already. Because apart from Jesus, you have no hope. Apart from Jesus, you're just looking forward to die. That's it. And once you've trusted Jesus, stand firm in your faith. Be steadfast, immovable. Live to honor God. Live to bring honor and glory to him. And if you're not already, start living life as if you've already won it. Because the truth be told, if you know Christ, you are a winner. And if you know Christ, the victory has already been won through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, a resurrection that serves as a prototype for what's going to happen to us. God has great plans for us in the future. We will not be held by the grave. He will come again, and the first thing he'll do is raise us to life, and we're here today on this Easter Sunday, not only to say thank you, Jesus, for your resurrection from the dead, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is God's word. Amen. And all God's people said,